0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Kristen Willemeyer conducted her graduate research in the Laboratory of Neurophysiology at UCLA and the Laboratory of Neurogenetics at Cedar Sinai Medical Center. She received MS degrees in physiological science and neurobiology and a PhD in neurobiology, also from UCLA. She was a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Neurology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, where she continued her work in the field of neurodegenerative disease. She was a recipient of an NIH Fellowship Award from the National Institute of Mental Health and has presented her work all over the world. And she's now the best-selling author of Biohack Your Brain, How to Boost Cognitive Health Performance and Power. So, you guessed it, we are going to dive deep and do all things brain health today. Kristen, welcome.
1: It is such a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
0: So, I love your book, Biohack Your Brain, and one of the things that stuck out to me immediately was the work you had done, specifically the clinical research you were involved with, looking at the brains of retired NFL players. So can we start there and fill us in on on what you saw and the subsequent protocol that you developed?
1: Yes, I would be delighted to. And as we were talking earlier, the reason why I wrote Biohack Your Brain was because of the work that we had done in professional athletes. So Back in 2009, I was the director of research for the Amen Clinics. Uh, Amen Clinics being an outpatient psychiatric center that really utilizes brain imaging as a way to target and treat people with complex psychiatric disorders. And one of our first big studies was this study in 2009, looking at the brains of 100 professional football players who had played for a minimum of three years on an NFL team and we wanted to ask the question, what happens in the brain? What are sort of the long-term effects of playing professional football? And after working with the first 10 to 15 players and seeing the extent of damage that was done to the brain, so we looked at the brain in a variety of ways. So we do something in a clinic called brain SPECT scan. So SPECT is a nuclear imaging study that looks at blood flow and activity patterns in the brain. We also do quantitative EEG, which allows us to look at the brainwave activity. And we also put these players through a series of tests, cognitive tests and neuropsychiatric assessments. And as a whole, after looking at the first 10 to 15 players who came into the study, we noticed that there was significant, what we call global hypoperfusion in the brain. And that's just a fancy way of saying, We saw significant deficits in blood flow throughout the brain when we compared those subjects to our normative database. And our normative database has 100 healthy individuals. And trust me, it took us almost 10 years to collect a database of truly healthy individuals. So after seeing this, we realized being in a clinical setting that we couldn't just work with players who had such significant brain damage. And again, it was diffuse throughout the brain. We saw damage to the prefrontal cortex, the temporal lobes, the parietal lobes, the occipital lobes, and the cerebellum. And we knew that we needed to put them on some kind of brain rehabilitation protocol immediately because running these kind of studies can get very expensive. We needed to do what we thought would be very simple dietary and lifestyle modifications. And I can get into the specifics on that, but what ended up happening is I ran what we called a brain directed weight loss group for our NFL players. And what I did was teach them how to live a brain healthy lifestyle. So I, re- I sort of revamped their dietary approach, taught them what kind of foods to eat, put them on a supplement protocol, gave them very specific brain training games, and then after a period of six months, we re the players and found that we were able to show significant improvements in blood flow and improvements in brain function in the first 30 players who came into our study. And there's a lot of layers we can go into here. I can go into the specific supplements, but that was the gist of it. We started with 15, ended up with 100 players. I then had a waiting list of another 100 players who wanted to come work with us but again, it's very expensive to run a study of this magnitude.
0: So, can you fill us in on some of the some of the highlights of what work for these players? I am curious about supplements. I'm a supplement junkie. I am, I am curious about food lifestyle. So, so please elaborate a little bit there.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, the first thing we did was. I put everybody on a Mediterranean diet. We know that the Mediterranean diet has an extensive amount of literature showing that it can reverse metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease. And now as of 2015, we know that the Mediterranean diet combined with the DASH diet, which is now called the MIND diet... Can help slow neurodegenerative decline in people who stay on it for as much as seven and a half years. So, but back in two thousand and nine, we knew the Mediterranean diet was going to be a very smart strategy to use with the players. And I go into the details of the Mediterranean diet in the book. When working with the players, I, I sort of made it very prescriptive. So it was much like a pilot would have a checklist before he was going to fly a plane. You're gonna have three servings of a green leafy vegetable each day. You're going to have one serving of an orange or colored vegetable. You're gonna have one serving of a legume, two servings of a fruit, preferably berries, because we know berries are loaded with antioxidants. Those are gonna protect your brain. Three servings of a type of concentrated protein, and depending on what somebody's food preferences are, you could have meat, you could have turkey, chicken, fish. Then you have you know, your serving of nuts and seeds, 10 to 12 nuts, not eating a whole bag of nuts. It really was prescriptive in the fact that there were also very specific guidelines around how much somebody could have. I kept the dairy down to one serving a day or none, and dairy being mostly plant-based is the preference, one serving of a grain, but that being a complex carbohydrate. And then we would make sure they got some kind of omega-3 fatty acid or fish oil. So that was the Mediterranean diet. And what's great is there is the ability to modify it accordingly depending on what an individual person's needs are. That's why I really like it um, because I know people have very specific dietary preferences. Some people are vegan, some are vegetarian, some are pescatarian. So I just think that's one of the best ways if you're thinking about preservation of brain health, following that kind of dietary protocol is really important. And what you'll find when doing that is start to reduce inflammation in the body, stabilize blood glucose levels, stabilize blood lipid levels. So everybody of course gets a lab panel and we were able to follow and track how effectively they not only followed the diet, but also a lot of the players I was working with lost an extensive amount of weight.
0: So given what you read in the news, uh, with regards to, to to ex-football players. It goes beyond NFL. You read about the mental health issues, depression, suicide, violence. It's, it's terrible. It's not a pretty picture. It, kind of a two-part question here. One, in your mind, and you're going under the hood, you're looking at yeah. their brains. One, one must think, how, how is football even legal given the damage that's going on in the brains? And then on the other hand, okay, it is legal. Should it almost be mandatory for every football football player to engage in this protocol post-football, because otherwise they are going to be facing some serious mental health issues. And unfortunately, there's collateral damage.
1: It, it, as we've just seen recently in the news. Yeah. Um, to your point, and again, I think this is why I thought it was so important to write this book, because after looking at the scans of hundreds of professional football players so the first study we published was in 100 players we published a subsequent study in 161 players and pretty much everybody who participates in a collision based sport is going to have over time it's the repetitive subconcussive impacts that happen over the course of weeks months years i mean with our the professional athletes in our study they've probably had a minimum of 10 years of repetitive subconcussive impacts, they may or may not have had a concussion, but it's those repetitive subconcussive impacts causing the shearing and tearing of not only the delicate neurons, so we call that diffuse axonal injuries, but also the tearing of the damage to the blood vessels. And if you don't give the brain time to repair, you're starting to have this sort of these degenerative changes that happen over the course of time. And to your point. A study is already published in the Journal of Neurology showing that professional football players had three times the likelihood to have a neurodegenerative disease in the general public, that being Alzheimer's or ALS. And having done work with players back in 2009, we're well over a decade since I started working with them. And I have a handful of players. One of them is now deceased several of them have Alzheimer's disease, one has ALS. So I'm sort of watching in a longitudinal fashion the players that I've worked with and what's happening to their brain. And so I think it's really important not only to be aware of, yes, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, we can't diagnose it in a living human, but we see it posthumously. And I think everybody's aware now, if you're going to put helmet on your head. You just need to be consciously aware that that kind of damage is going to happen. And what I want people to sort of be empowered by is there are strategies that you can take if you're going to participate in those kind of sports that can I'd like to say reverse some of the damage. I mean, we're not going to be able to fully reverse any of that damage because it's just cumulative over time. It's no different than when I talk to people about Alzheimer's or dementia. Those of us who've worked in a laboratory setting, which was sort of the first 10 years of my career, those diseases of aging, the cellular changes happen two decades before you have a symptom. So Alzheimer's starting in your sixth or seventh decade of life, say average age 65, those cellular changes are happening as early as 45 or 50. Now, if you add on top of that, that you're participating in a collision-based sport, whether it's rugby, football, your BMX biker, you're a military veteran. I mean, let's not forget veterans are also sort of part of this group of impacts to the brain, but those are more from IEDs and traumatic brain injuries. But what you're seeing is you're going to have an earlier earlier issues with cognitive impairment, memory issues, behavioral issues, mood instability. And as we're seeing with some of the professional football players, when you get damage to the temporal lobe, which is sort of mood and memory centers, that's where you see the increase in aggressive behavior, violent behavior, and combined with damage to the frontal lobes, which governs impulsivity, you start to have a really challenging situations. So you've got a brain damaged professional athlete, right? Damaged the frontal lobes, damaged the temporal lobes. Now, again, they increased likelihood to be more aggressive and impulsive and do things we would say almost without forethought and sort of acting and reacting. And these are the things that we need to help people get in front of, which is why I'm glad we're starting to have more conversations in the mental health space with athletes, you know, allowing athletes to feel comfortable in speaking about having mood issues. And it's, that's a hard thing for men to do.
0: Sure. Sure. And and I think, look, contact sports, it's still, it's a relatively small portion of the population. So I'm going to segue to the, but there's a much bigger problem with regards to our cognitive health. 10% of all Americans over the age of 65 Have dementia, and and you say it's all about blood flow. And you mentioned blood Mm -hmm. flow earlier as well. So, can you talk about blood flow and talk a little bit about if I'm young, I'm healthy, the things I need to do now, or I need to be on a lookout for? So, by the time dementia hits or cognitive decline hits, sometimes it's almost it's not too late. I don't want to say it's too late. There are things you can do, but you, you want to get ahead of it, and you can make lifestyle decisions now that you will reap the benefit from years, 20 20 plus years from now?
1: Absolutely. it's. I will tell you in writing this book, I am sort of your contemporary. We're around the same age, but this is the kind of book that I would want in my 20s so I could get ahead of the game and start doing the preventative strategies. So when we think about cognitive decline, there are several things that are considered modifiable risk factors. One of them being midlife obesity. So we wanna make sure you're at a healthy weight because having excess weight on your body is inflammatory and pretty much all diseases of aging or chronic diseases of aging are inflammatory. So if you wanna get ahead of the game, we wanna have you at a healthy uh, weight for your height so getting your body mass index into the healthy range which is why diet is so important in finding the right diet that works for you number 2 midlife diabetes and again that goes hand in hand with diet and when i say diabetes i mean type 2 diabetes the sort of adult onset not type 1 so we want to make sure our blood sugars are regulated because over time the blood sugar can help it can actually damage your blood vessels if you have too much sugar circulating in your blood and it's not able to get into your cells that's going to cause problems and as probably you've interviewed people have talked about a type 3 kind of diabetes that's like a associated with alzheimer's so can you imagine not being able to get the fuel that you're eating into the neurons in your brain so we got to do the, so we've got obesity diabetes hypertension so we want to make sure that you're regulating your blood flow and managing your hypertension and your blood pressure, which is why in our household, we have a blood pressure cuff and everybody uses it daily. I know the young people who are listening to this probably aren't ever going to think about that, but blood pressure is so important. And when we're thinking about blood flow to the brain, we want to keep our brains oxygenated. And when we start to lose blood flow to the brain through anything, I mean, you can lose blood flow to the brain through exposure to toxic substances through head injuries through obesity diabetes so we want to think about these things so we've got obesity diabetes midlife hypertension treating depression so depression can be an inflammatory condition as well that's why it's really important if you're if you have any kind of psychiatric issue to make sure you get help addressing that physical inactivity so Being physical and exercise is so important. We've got 400 miles of blood vessels, uh, capillaries in our brain. So the easiest way to protect our brain long-term is to get daily exercise, whether that's sustained aerobic activity combined with some resistance training. I think doing both is really important. I would tell people to get daily exercise, even if it's just walking the ten thousand steps a day, which when I was teaching my weight loss groups, and I had people in those groups that were in their seventies, eighties, and nineties, they might not be running over to the gym, you know, to jump on a treadmill or to sit on a bike, but they could get their you know Fitbit and make sure that they're walking at least ten thousand steps a day. So getting that exercise in, you want to make sure that you maintain uh, your social network. That's also really important. It's a risk factor for dementia with aging. And I think we're learning more about this now during the pandemic. Loneliness is a big issue with people. And I think maybe one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we're more aware of loneliness, not just in the older populations, because that's what happens when people get older. They sort of get isolated, they lose their jobs or their families have moved away. And again, that increases your risk of dementia. So just staying socially connected. And then smoking. So I think we all know smoking is not great for <laughs> your brain health. 4,000 chemicals that are in cigarettes and cigarette smoke. So we want to make sure you don't smoke and cognitive activity. So we want to make sure you stay cognitively active throughout life. And one, one of my favorite uh, stories that I like to share is, because this is personal, is Betty White, the actress. Uh, comes and visits people in the building that we live in Los Angeles. And she just turned 99. And she was thanking the person who had interviewed her had said, what's the secret to making it to 99. And she thanked her agent for continuing to book her jobs because here she is this 99 year old woman who's still memorizing scripts and And the other thing she said was not to like sweat the small stuff and stay optimistic and not worry about what happened in the past, just sort of think to the future. But I thought to myself, we talk about cognitive training a lot in neuroscience, but this is a woman who every day is still memorizing and keeping her memory sharp. And so I like to share that story because this is something that we can all do. We can all find ways to keep working our brain and keeping it going.
0: I love it. Who doesn't love Betty White? God bless her. I know. Uh, she
1: looks amazing, by the <laughs> way. She like glows. Oh my gosh.
0: So you talked about exercise and I'd love mm-hmm. to, to drill down a bit there in, in terms of specific exercises or specific exercise for potential ailments.
1: Yes, Yes. So what we found is there are different kind of exercises that work well for people who might have anxiety versus depression versus ADHD. Overall, we like everybody to get sustained aerobic activity. In the peer-reviewed literature, that is really what has been shown to not only grow new, new neurons in the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain critical for learning and memory. When our When our hippocampus shrinks as we age, we start to have memory problems. So when you're in your 70s or 80s, you might have an MRI that looks at hippocampal volume. So we definitely want to keep the hippocampus nice and big. And so exercise helps do that sustained aerobic exercise because it boosts brain derived neurotrophic factor the factor that keeps that area of the brain strong but if you have adhd so problems with attention focus sustained attention some of the best exercise that you can do is the hit training the high intensity interval training that's because it helps to boost dopamine in the brain it gives that boost of dopamine in the prefrontal cortex so you can do the HIIT training or even the boxing can really be helpful for people who have that. For depression, we want to have people do more of that sustained aerobic activity over the course of at least 30 minutes to 45 minutes. That really helps to boost serotonin, which is calming to the brain. That's why we like those longer forms of exercise for depression. And then for anxiety, Some of the more, what I would sort of call contemplative practices, the yoga, the meditation and going out on hikes in nature is really good for people who have an anxious brain. And then you can, of course, do, everybody can do weight training across all three of those. But that's what we've found has been most helpful for people, depending on what your main issue might be.
0: Interesting. You know, you Mm -hmm. mentioned going for walks in nature. I feel over I feel like over the past year I've seen more and more research come out around the power of walking in nature nature bathing if you will and you get bang for your buck if you go for a walk with friends outside in nature uphill yes
1: a pill, you're getting the sunlight, you're getting vitamin D, you're getting fresh air, you're having a social connection. But what's great about nature, I mean, I've told people even spending time sitting in nature, whether it's for 10 minutes or for one hour, the reason why that's so helpful is the earth has its own frequency, which is called a Schumann resonance, which is about 7.8 hertz, which puts us into the theta brainwave state. So theta is when we're sort of in that dreaming, very relaxed state, which is why when we're in nature, we tend to be more relaxed. So I think this is sort of a double uh, benefit of being in nature.
0: I, I love it. and I, But I'm curious. So I'm a city dweller. As I mentioned, people know yes. I'm in Dumbbell in Brooklyn. We have a beautiful park here and we've got water. Is all nature created equal? Is it, is how much greenery do you need? Is water better than land? Is mountain better than plateau? Like just in general, or is it all? Think, cre- or am I overthinking it?
1: I I actually think it's all created equal. I mean, here we are in the desert right now. Is uh, I told you I'm in Palm Springs, so I'm at the foot of Tequites Mountain. There's not a lot of greenery. Well, there is a golf course across the street from us, so there is some greenery there. But it is you know very different from where we're at in Los Angeles, which doesn't have as much greenery because I'm sort of in the concrete jungle area. But I think all nature, it's all fair game, right? I think it's all coming from the same source. And it's what works for us. I think some people tend to be calmer and happier when they go on hikes in the mountains. And then other people are more uh, geared towards water or being in water. That's why for some, when I was working with the NFL players and trying to help them get back into exercise, it's we're sort of circling back. Uh, to working with the players, a lot of them who had these injuries didn't really want to go out and exercise for their brain health, but I could always get them in the pool and to be in water. So, what I would do is I said, just get in the pool, take a kickboard. I mean, I'm talking that simple. And just, I said, do laps back and forth. And I, then I would have them come back and report to me how many laps they did. Did you do 25? Did you do 70? Because sometimes you have to get really creative when you want to help people exercise, especially if they're in pain or have pain issues or brain issues thought I'd throw that in. So that's the, the water piece, the water can be very calming to the brain being in it.
0: I love it. And you mentioned exercise, you mentioned swimming. I go to hydration and you say hydration is huge for brain health. So fill us in.
1: I am a big fan of making sure everybody's hydrated. In fact, one of the first things that I do when I teach people about taking care of their brain health is to make sure they are drinking their daily, as you drink your water, <laughs> their daily. I'm, happy recorder, I'm becoming
0: self-conscious. I've got my, 30, my 32 ounce Yeti of Yay! water. I got to do it.
1: That's so perfect. Yeah. I, I will tell you. So the Institute of Medicine has these standard recommendations that men should drink around 125 ounces of water per day. Women drink approximately 90 ounces of water. We had a formula that we used in the clinic where you could basically take your body weight, divide it by two, and that's how much water you should drink each day in ounces. So if you wow. weigh 200 pounds, you should drink hundred ounces of water. That's really a way to tailor it to you. And I will tell you having taught hundreds if not thousands of people in these groups about how to get brain fit and healthy and lose weight, the number one thing people don't do is drink enough water. So this is the first thing that we check off our list is have you drank your water today? And you can get 20% of that water from hydrating fruits and vegetables or green juices. So you can do that. You can do the lemon waters, the spa water. So there's flexibility in how you get your fluids. But if you think about the fact that your brain is 75% water, And I tell, and I write in this book, it's not juice, coffee, tea, it's water. And it's just, it's going to help keep your blood pressure normalized. It's going to help flush toxins from your cells. It keeps your cells metabolically active and very healthy. It's going to keep your skin healthy. It just, when you have a one to 2% drop in hydration, you can start to have brain fog and symptoms associated with brain fog. So if I'm going to work with somebody and help them to have a better memory. The first thing I say is how much are you drinking? How much water are you drinking? Are you doing juices? That's really one of the basics.
0: And so what's your take on coconut water, electrolyte mm-hmm. water, assuming it's not terrible. Those waters out there that are great for hydration, are, are those great as well?
1: I love the coconut water and I love electrolyte water. I used to do it myself, as I talk about in the book, when I was having fainting spells, that's really what kept me stabilized is just plain water with an electrolyte solution. If you're going to do the coconut water, one of the rules that I had in our group was no more than five grams of sugar per serving. And and when I teach people about how to take care of their health and their brain health, I stick with, sort of very regimented sugar guidelines. So women should really not have more than 25 grams of sugar per day. Men, no more than 36 grams per day. And that's according to the American Heart Association. But when I had patients in my groups track their sugar calories, they averaged 90 to 100 grams per day. So it's no surprise why why we have an obesity epidemic and a diabetes runs rampant and why I'm talking about these being very important things that we need to stabilize and correct for our long-term brain health and it isn't until you it isn't until you measure by the way because we always say you can't right. change what you don't measure so right yeah.
0: right that's why i have all these wearables yeah uh, it's great <laughs> so in terms of food i, I hear you loud and clear mediterranean diet omega-3 rich we 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 covered that we we know sugar is not good is there anything else (laughs) with regards to to food that we should avoid or that was just generally surprising that really was not good for cognitive health
1: well I'm glad you asked that question. Part of the reason why I wrote this book, it's very experiential. So it's not just, you know, the published research that we've done, but when you start working with patients and watching them over time, hundreds if not thousands of people starting to lose weight and what works and what doesn't work. I mean, we try to get people off of sodas and fried foods and trans fats and saturated fats and cutting out uh, a lot of processed foods, getting back to the whole food plant-based dietary approach. What I found works for people because I had to do a lot of upgrades, right? I think eating food is all on a continuum. And when I'm working with people, I want you to love what you eat because this is really about a lifestyle change. It's not about a diet ever. And so what I would try to inspire people to do is get a little bit more excited about fresh green juices because it was an easy way for me to help get three servings of a green vegetable and a fruit in there very easily and work within the parameters of the other foods that they're eating. I found most people don't eat legumes at all. I think beans are really underappreciated. And I, I heard your podcast with Dan Butner talking about the joys of beans and the different recipes he has in his cookbook. And I found so everything I teach my patients, I do as well. So I wasn't eating enough legumes. Most people do not eat orange vegetables at all. You almost have to make a conscious effort to get carrots or uh, sweet potato or yam. It's just not something we naturally go to. So it's about being conscientious about getting some of these nutrients in and getting your nuts and seeds in, but not eating too much. So the other thing is people overconsume And I had a majority of people on 2,000 calories a day or less. Right, men really don't need to be eating more than 2,000 calories. My football players were averaging four 4,000 to 4,500 calories per day, and that was after football. So, if you're an active athlete, if you're Michael Phelps, right, you can certainly have plenty more, you know, calories and not have to worry about how it's impacting your body. But I realized the success to being brain healthy is literally learning the steps that you should practice every day, right? The hydration, the green juicing, staying within a calorie limit, staying within a particular sugar limit. You can have variations in some of the foods you eat. I mean, my gosh, it's, there's a lot of people out there who eat bad foods and live to a hundred, but They might not have beautiful looking brains. And the one thing I will say after seeing thousands of brain scans, even in people who were healthy, trying to be a part of our healthy database, they still had poor blood flow to the brain. And if we don't correct the perfusion deficits, and if we don't do more things to help protect our neurons, we will have cognitive issues as we age. And... It's just inevitable. I talk about it in the book, the brain volume declines with age starting at, you know, age 40, we lose about 5% volume each decade. So we want to do these things. We want to make more conscientious efforts on doing what I call some of these very simple things, very simple lifestyle changes. If practiced consistently will support your brain health for a lifetime.
0: So we covered a lot of nutrition. We covered a lot of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Let's dive into some of those simple practices. You talk about thinking, your thoughts. You mentioned games, and you talked about Betty White reading scripts. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of scripts aren't coming across people's desks. So what are some like everyday things, Things exercises, if you will, that that anyone can do? Just start working on their brain or thoughts, a negative thought. Like how do we gamify our everyday existence so that we can build uh, better brains?
1: Well, number one, if we're going to go into sort of how do we train our brain, The number one thing I think people need to do more of is long form reading, 15 to 30 minutes of picking up any kind of a book. When we're younger, that's how we learn, not just vocabulary, sentence structure, how we relate to the world at large. And I think reading for a lot of people is a long lost art, not reading texts and social media and quick reading, but I'm talking about just finding books that you're interested in because The brain learns and forms these cognitive maps. So the more reading you're doing as you age will still keep your brain sharp. You're going to continue to learn. So I think that's very simple. And you can elevate your game by speed reading. You can actually learn how to read faster or, but just getting in the long form reading each day. I do brain training games. I've learned that they worked in the clinical setting. We used to have tailored brain training games based on your deficits. So if we scanned you and then did certain testing and we knew we needed to work on the prefrontal cortex and help you with your sustained attention, concentration, focus, working memory. So I do like tailored brain training games. I use Brain HQ. It's really easy. It's on my phone. You know, it's easy to do 10 minutes. So that's another thing that you can do to train your brain. I love learning new words each day. So I have the Merriam-Webster app on my phone. I am every single day I learn a new word. And then what I do is I practice writing it with my non-dominant hand. So 95% of us wow. are, right, are right-handed. And what you'll find is if you start doing that, it's just a fun thing. I think in neuroscience, we're always trying to learn new ways to step out of our comfort zone. But when you start writing and doing things with your non-dominant hand, you will start drinking with your non-dominant hand. You'll start brushing your teeth with your non-dominant hand, and even small little changes. Well, doing something with your non-dominant hand may not improve your memory per se. It's going to strengthen connections because every single kind of movement we make is always strengthening connections in our brain. So it's just new learning is about stepping outside of your comfort zone and what we like to call, it, it's like stretching your neurons. So you're you know, working new circuits. And these are, I think every single person who's listening could read from a long form book for 15 minutes a day, learn a new word a day, practice writing it with your non-dominant hand, teach it to your spouse, teach it to your friend, because actually repetition, if you repeat it five times throughout the day, it'll help take it from your short term memory. And when you go to sleep at night, it can then help get encoded into your long term memory. So that's a fun way to start. And of course I could go into how you improve your memory, but Yeah. How do you, <laughs> so these you have, give, give
0: us some to if what are what are the the These are
1: fun, like like yeah, brain what training? Should we do? <laughs> it you know, sometimes I tell people it's all in what you want to remember. One of the other long lost arts is just writing by hand. So I'm a big fan of writing by hand. I read a book, I take notes on a notepad by hand when I'm learning something new, I'm listening to a TED talk, or if I was listening to a podcast that you have, and I want to learn something, I will write it out by hand. Because when we write by hand, we organize things in our mind. And the more that we're doing, that's what I'm saying. I think people have stopped writing by hand. They text now, and it's harder to remember things by text. And even when we're reading things on the phone. So I've learned that reading by phone versus reading from a book. is a little bit different. We tend to remember things that we read out of a book or a newspaper, because as I was saying, the brain can form these cognitive maps. They can see the pages and remember facts that were on certain pages based on the location of the information that you're reading. So these are just fun little tidbits. I mean, I'm always... Expanding and upgrading, and I'm a big writer. I'm writing constantly, even writing. You'd ask about thoughts and how to, you know, manage your thoughts. Practice of journaling is really helpful, and I think, really, people learning how to get more into back into writing is going to be very supportive for brain health. How often do you do you write by hand or do you do cursive?
0: Not very often. I have to write a lot of emails, but without bashing texting you know texting is is a way of life it's not going anywhere it's effective but it's shorthand people don't write in complete sentences texts are often reactive there's no context context Mm -hmm. is completely lost they're devoid of emotion there was a book what made maddie run which was written by a friend of mine kate fagan it's this heartbreaking story of an athlete, she was. She ran at University of Pennsylvania and she took her own life. And on paper, great family, great everything, had friends. And the book is, the journalist Kate had access to her computer and texts and everything and went on this journey. And one of the, there are many takeaways, it's a heartbreaking book, but one of the take, takeaways was in a world with texting, she was texting like sad faces, emojis, like saying, I'm hurting but that just, or I'm not doing well. It just mm-hmm. doesn't come across translate. like people translate when people. And so it's just so sad and emotion just doesn't get communicated in the way that face-to-face communication well, does, or even a phone call. And she went on to say, I think it's, an, uh, I'm going to butcher it. I'm going to defer to you. You're either are professional. But when you hear a loved one's voice saying it's going to be okay, there's, A different chemical response than a text saying it's going to be okay.
1: There's an energetic frequency to our voice that is that we are connected to that helps, that calms people down. So there is this is why I'm actually very careful with text and how I respond to people because it is so easy for information to get misconstrued but when you're able to see a person or hear it. Or as you said, when somebody writes a handwritten note, there's something more personalized and connected to that. Now, Hey, I'm with you. I am part of this world of texting, but there's a, I I just feel that there's this underappreciated component to handwriting and maybe it's like you and I, cause we grew up in the day where we didn't have any of this <laughs> and maybe being in the pandemic, I will tell you, it's really interesting. My whole life has slowed down and shifted considerably from the normal every day, running around, getting in the car, doing a two hour commute every day to work, just getting caught up in the day-to-day stuff. And now Everything has slowed down and it's made me sit and appreciate all the little things, all the nuances, the way we communicate. I communicate with my husband better, believe it or not, because he's been home. We've been home for this whole year during the pandemic. And I have a greater appreciation of those tools that we have to communicate and learning how to communicate better. And I know I, I kind of took the what you were talking about, the story. No, no,
0: no. It's it, it, it's, it's very important. It, it really is. And that's a whole nother rabbit hole. But I'm glad it, we it, went it
1: there. Is, it's, it's another rabbit hole because it made me think when I was listening to Dan Butner and the importance of connection and centenarians and what helps us live a long, healthy life. And I think it's as important here we are having this topic on how to be brain healthy, how to be emotionally connected and being socially connected and finding ways to not let people slip through the cracks in our technology-driven world, like this young woman who wrote the book. Nobody could hear her cries for help, her sad emojis. They didn't really, truly understand what she was going through emotionally. And it's important.
0: It is important. And, you know, I'm an optimist and (laughs) Yay, I think me too. <laughs> yeah. And I think, look, you've got a great book. I hope everyone picks it up. Biohack your brain. And, and there are okay. so many great people doing work in cognitive health right now. So I, I think it's front and center. And so with that said, what do you, what are you paying attention to in terms of research, science? Mm-hmm. What do you think is the future? What do you think we're going to be talking about a, a year from now in the cognitive health conversation?
1: Well, research that I'm really excited about is one of my colleagues, Dr. Black, who is a chair of neurosurgery over at Cedar Sinai Medical Center, has been doing studies using curcumin, um, which is from the root of the turmeric plant, using curcumin to show that it not only can cross the blood brain barrier, but crosses the blood retinal barrier. And can bind to the plaques, the beta amyloid plaques that we see in Alzheimer's, and we can potentially use uh, visual testing to identify people who might have early Alzheimer's before they have cognitive symptoms, and be able to address it and treat it right decades before the disease could happen. To me, that is an extraordinary advancement in science. Imagine that you could take your mother or you could go yourself to have an eye test, right? So you take a form of curcumin that binds to this, crosses the blood uh, blood retinal barrier. You can see it and go, okay, we're starting to get some accumulation here. Let's make sure that you're following to the T a great Alzheimer's prevention program. And again, that's just about diet and lifestyle and nutrients. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do, but if you start, if you're more aware of it earlier, you're going to follow through. Because I think a lot of people, unfortunately, are really cavalier and they don't really change their habits until they've been scanned and they find out that they have a degenerative disease or traumatic brain injury. And then it's a really big life shift. But imagine if you can get ahead of it. I mean, that's why I wrote the book. The book is about, you know, I want to take the guesswork out of it for people. These are the things that worked. The, there's the research behind it to show it works. It will change the way your brain is functioning. That's the biohacking component. But this is where I see the really exciting research going because we don't have any drugs. We don't have a cure for Alzheimer's. We have none and we do not have any drugs that can prevent, Can adru- we have drugs that can help address the symptoms temporarily, but they do not work long-term. So to me, in coming full circle, you know, taking care of your cognitive health, your brain health, your brain is your number one asset, right? It's the organ that allows you to think, feel, ideate, create, connect, have joy. Your beautiful relationships allows us to express emotion. It stores our precious memories. So we want to really be wise and well worth young and fit and healthy, do all the things we can do to take care of it and think it'll, it will take care of you in kind.
0: Amen. We will close Mm -hmm. there. Kristen, thank you so much.
1: Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.